Welcome to On DOD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for joining us this week. And on this week's program, we return to the topic of other transaction agreements in the Defense Department. One of the reasons OTAs are a bit controversial is DOD's use of third-party consortiums to manage those agreements. As we and others have pointed out over the years, that structure actually makes it pretty difficult for researchers, news outlets, anyone else who's interested in government spending to figure out exactly what's happening with OTAs because the actual solicitation and award process generally is only visible to members of that consortium. In a lot of cases, the actual awards are tracked on individual Excel spreadsheets. That data is not publicly reported. And according to a new audit by the DOD Inspector General, those consortiums aren't just a black box to us. DOD itself really doesn't have a clear picture of how it's spending money through consortiums. That's because of both some policy weaknesses and shortcomings in the federal procurement data system, which still isn't really designed to track that consortium spending. And one data point from the audit that really highlights this is the IG examined 13 different large OTA awards. They're reported as 13 OTAs in FPDS, but auditors discovered they actually represented 143 different awards to individual vendors, worth $627 million. And there's no way of knowing that without doing the legwork to dig through those spreadsheets inside of various military contracting offices. There's a lot to this report, and we're going to try and cover a lot of ground with our guest today. Teresa Hull is the Assistant Inspector General for Audit in the areas of acquisition, contracting, and sustainment. She's with us for the full program this week. Teresa, I think I'd like to have you start us off by just explaining, for people who are not intimately familiar with DOD's use of other transaction authority, how the consortium approach to OTAs actually works and how it's different from maybe some of the other ways DOD, like DIU, for example, would use an OTA. How are consortiums distinctive when it comes to OTAs, and why did you decide to focus this piece of oversight work on the the consortium route? An OTA that's awarded to an individual firm is similar to a typical contract, except in this case, it doesn't have to follow the FAR. Um, so just for a, a standalone OTA, an agreements personnel would post a solicitation and request proposals or white papers. And then from there, the selection um, for the work, the OTA would be awarded directly to that contractor. Now, on the other, other side, the OTAs for consortiums, the agreements personnel may still publicly post the solicitation. However, the, um, only the members of a consortium may submit a white paper or a proposal. Um, there's something called a consortium management organization or a CMO, and they post the solicitation to a consortium website and collect responses and submit to the government for review. So the major differences between an OT, like or a standalone OT, and an OT awarded through a consortium is the fact that a consortium management organization or CMO is involved. And another another difference would be how the OT is awarded. Now, the actual award for an individual OT is made directly to the contractor. So the relationship is between the government and that contractor. For an OTA through a consortium, the CMO interacts with the government on the consortium member's behalf. So instead of the government directly interacting with the contractor, it's done through the CMO. So there isn't a direct relationship between the government and this OTA consortium member. 
the reason why we focused on this is because we were seeing with the uh, with Congress giving the department more authority to use this type of contracting vehicle, we were seeing an uptick in the use of OTs. And this particular area within OTs, OTs um, awarded through consortiums, uh, present a, a much higher risk than some of the other OTs because of the lack of visibility that the government has on a lot of the information. So this to us was ripe for, um, for additional oversight. Before we get too deeply into consortium-specific issues, let me just have you spend a, a, another quick beat on some OT basics here. You mentioned they don't have to follow the FAR. Can you give us some general sense of the amount of latitude the government has to get around? That's that, that's more pejorative than I really mean, but to, but to not apply traditional acquisition rules and processes when they're using an OTA. How much latitude do they have compared to a normal acquisition process? There is significant latitude when it comes to OT contracting as it compares to regular contracting or FAR-based contracting. There, there aren't a lot of, of you know, rules and regulations. There's an OT guide that you know, the, staff ha- the officials have to follow, but other than that, there isn't like a strict FAR-based rule set that they apply. You know, there, there are definitely benefits for the government going this, this way. Um, you know, the, the entire, like the point of having the OTs is to provide you know, innovative solutions for government technology challenges. Uh, consortiums, especially the CMOs, are able to reach a lot of you know traditional and non-traditional vendors, nonprofits, academia, resources that the government may not be able to reach themselves. So, you know, when you're looking at resources in the technology domain area, cyberspace, undersea propulsion, medical, um, there's just these solutions that these CMOs are able to bring to the government. So there's certainly benefits. Um, what we found in our report is that although there are benefits, and this is a great flexibility for the department to use this type of contracting, there there needs to be greater controls in place. Yeah, so let's let's dig into consortium specifically now. Thanks for thanks for that explainer. I think it's good for people who who aren't intimately familiar with OTs. You, you mentioned earlier that these consortium approaches are higher risk because of the lack of visibility. What sorts of information did, were you looking for when you went through this evaluation, and and what did you not find when you when you looked for it? What 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 sorts of data should the government have that it doesn't have when it looks into a consortium? When the government does its contracting through the OT, uh, OTA through consortium, what we're lacking or what we're, we're not seeing is more of the information, the tracking information for each of these OTs. So how this works is in our Federal Procurement Data System, or FPDS-NG, uh, when you look for a specific award, you'll see a base award. And that base award is related to that CMO because the direct contractual relationship in this case is, with, is between the government and the consortium management organization. But that CMO's purpose is to connect the government with some of these other traditional, non-traditional vendors or contractors. But we don't see that level of detail in the system. So what, what results is a lack of visibility for department leadership to be able to see how much each of these projects are costing, there are hundreds of individual projects that are awarded off these base OTAs, and the services are relying on their individual tracking spreadsheets that they maintain at various contracting offices to get this information. So that's, that's a high risk for DOD 
um, to not be able to track that those projects on an individual basis and have a sense for how much money is being obligated. So just to mention a notional example here, and I, I don't know if this example applies, but I know the Navy, for example, just awarded a $400 million ceiling for one of its OTAs for information warfare. When you look at FPDS, you might see just that $400 million and none of the actual work that's going on inside that consortium. I don't know if that's the case with that consortium, but that's the sort of dynamic that you're talking about, right? Exactly. So so if, you were look at, if you're looking at the system, to use your example, you would see that $400 million award. But if it took 16 individual projects to, to accomplish that work, you're not going to see the 16 individual projects in the system. Somewhere you know, in, in a component, a, a contracting individual has a spreadsheet and they're tracking those 16 awards, or it could even be several services issued uh, you know, off of that base award. So it, it really broadens the the risk because you know you don't know how just how much is out there, and that that becomes very problematic when you're trying to manage um, this this process overall. And th- this is only one area where there might be risk, but it seems like there's a huge risk of duplication if all of this stuff is being tracked in individual offices on spreadsheets. The government doesn't know all of the research that it's investing in, and it may be doing the same research in five different consortia. Correct. There, there isn't really a clear picture to know if services are duplicating efforts, and it creates really a blind spot for DOD. They're unable to determine specific projects that contracting personnel are awarding under these consortiums and how much the government's spending on a particular project or area and even more important who's performing that work. It's really the base award information that is visible to to DOD right now, not those individual project awards that are made to the consortium members once that base agreement is is, um, in place. And, and tell me if I'm understanding this part right, but but as I understood the report, it's not just that you're only seeing the total ceiling value in the federal procurement data system. It's that different agreements officers report things differently in FPDS so that one might put in a value for the total ceiling value. One might do just what's initially being obligated. So there's a lot of inconsistency between how the services are, are even reporting their data here, right? Yes, there there's inconsistency. There isn't any guidance on how contracting officials should enter the information. The OT guide that I mentioned earlier um, doesn't have a lot of specificity when it comes to these consortiums. So the agreements personnel that are tracking this information um, are, are not necessarily being consistent because they don't have a guideline to follow. And when we discussed this with the department leadership, they did agree that that was a weakness and that they had planned to, to update their OT guides so that their staff are able to handle this in, in a manner in which um, is more beneficial to the department. Teresa Hull is Assistant DOD Inspector General for Audit. We'll come back and talk more about the OIG's new report on DOD's use of consortiums for other transaction agreements and some of the other problems auditors found after a quick break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Surdale. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. 
talking with Teresa Hull, the Assistant DoD Inspector General for Audit for Acquisition Issues, about a new OIG report zeroing in on some of the problems in DoD's use of other transaction agreements. The IG made 13 separate recommendations, including that the department update its informal other transactions guide to try to add some controls to its use of consortiums for OTAs. You mentioned that guide. Um, just stick with that point for a minute. Is is guidance strong enough for something that is such a new frontier for the DoD acquisition community? Or is, does DoD really need firmer policy on how to navigate this OT space? Well, there, there are certain flexibilities that were intended for DoD in, in the use of OTs. So the flexibility needs to be there because the gov- DOD needs to be able to, to obtain those innovative solutions that we discussed earlier. The problem here is that greater controls are needed, and we, there, there's an ability to create these greater controls without hurting that flexibility. The department needs to continue to find ways to advance technology capabilities, but in order to do that, as a counterbalance, they need to have visibility over the costs and the purposes of those transaction projects. So implementing um, more consistent guidance in the OT guide, for example, would be beneficial. Uh, updating the ability for the agreements officials to update FPDSNG to be able to provide that project-specific information would greatly improve the department's ability to track and to obtain and access information. Yeah, um, you anticipated my next question, which was going to be, to the extent that there is missing data about the department's use of OTs. Is that a system weakness within FPDS, or is it a policy failure, or both? I would say both. From a policy perspective, DOD needs to issue guidance, specifically on how agreements personnel should award or report those individual projects that are awarded through these consortiums. They DOD needs to determine whether the contracting personnel should award projects under a consortium as a contract modification, for example, or a task order. Um, There just needs to be a consistent approach so that that information can be tracked. DOD also needs to specify whether uh, modifications or task orders should only include information specific to one project instead of including information to multiple projects. There just needs to be more structure there as far as what what the expectation is for information that needs to be reported. Um, I I can give you an example. Um, We talked about the Navy. Um, We we saw that most Navy contracting officers awarded projects as task orders to one member. So what that means is that each individual prototype project that the Navy awarded is tracked to a specific task order. To provide a contrast, the, the Army contracting office issued a task order for a single project to six different consortium members. So that's, that's, that's vastly different. Um, further, there are other contracting officers that awarded everything as a modification to, a, to that original base agreement, meaning that a single modification can include awards and funding to different projects. So as you can see, the services are treating this very differently. Now, as far as system design, um, there, there's, it's also beneficial for FPDS to include options uh, for contracting personnel um, so that they're able to identify whether the OTA award is to an individual firm or to a consortium. And again, if, if it's to a consortium, it would be beneficial to have options where the contracting personnel can enter who the project award was to, you know, the work that was being performed, the amount of the project, 
you know, I want to stress again that the intent of OTs is to allow flexibility, and DOD needs consistent procedures for rewarding and tracking the, the OTs for more accurate reporting. Um, there's just that information, that data-rich information is important for leadership to be able to make the appropriate decisions on policy, on guidance, um, to know what these OTAs are being used for. And implementing these additional controls for how to award and how to report the OTs is not going to impact the flexibilities for the use of OTs as, as they were intended. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there's been a fair amount of press, including some stories written by me, frankly, about the, the growth in DOD's use of OTs, including citations to specific numbers over the past few years. And I've just got to wonder, do we have any confidence in those numbers at this point, considering the data discrepancies that you've been describing in FPDS? Is, is it even possible to know how much DOD is obligating via other transactions? Well, at a very high level... DOD can see how much money they've obligated to, um, or obligated overall to a specific technology area that, that, that is awarded on a base OTA, but it's not possible to see what's obligated at the project level under that base. Um, for our particular audit, we, we reviewed 13 base OTAs valued at $24.6 billion, and we were not able to um, determine the full universe of transactions of OTAs. So to your point, um, it is a incredibly daunting task to be able to pull that information together considering that you can't do it manually through the system. Um, you, you mentioned specifically in the report that DOD didn't always plan and execute OTs through consortium in accordance with laws and regulations. And when I saw that, it made me wonder that there is so, there is so much wiggle room in the OT world were there actual examples of violations of law and regulation here, or are there just different components of the department interpreting a pretty broad statute in different ways? Uh, due to the limited laws and regulations and the flexi flexibilities that are inherent with the OT process, it is difficult to identify clear failures to comply. Uh, the OTA guide that, we, that I referred to earlier, it's not a required document, it's, it is a guideline. For, for our report, we focused on more the overall process for awarding OTs through consortiums, areas where we thought additional guidelines or best practices would be helpful to ensure agreements personnel complied with laws um, and that the government was receiving the best value through the use of the OTs, and again, without impacting the flexibilities that, that these OTs allowed. The OTA guide, though, is it's geared more towards OTAs as a whole. And it didn't really focus too much on the guidelines specific to those that were awarded through a consortium. And because the consortium process is just so different than those individual OTAs that were awarded directly, you know, the ones that are awarded directly to a contractor, it caused agreement personnel that were trying to implement these OTAs through consortiums, it caused some confusion on how to apply the guidance to these areas that, were, um, that we outlined throughout our report. So the way they interpreted the guidelines for consortium purposes, it, it, it was, you know, inconsistent. And that, that's exactly why we highlighted the instances where we, we saw that and um, established the need for, for updates to the, to the OT guide to, to be able to give the um, agreements personnel more, more guidelines as far as how to treat them. 
Teresa Hull is Assistant DOD Inspector General for Audit. Another quick break. We'll come back in just a minute and talk more about DOD's use of consortiums for other transaction agreements. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbio. Thanks for listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. As we get back to our conversation with Teresa Hull from the DOD Inspector General's Office, we're discussing some new findings from a very detailed audit of DOD's use of other transaction agreements. We've focused mostly so far on, on tracking the actual transactions in the whole OT ecosystem, but the report really goes well beyond that as far as identifying potential concerns with other transactions in these consortium. Let's talk about some of the security issues that you flagged in the report. I, th- I think we've flicked at the fact that, that DOD intentionally has set the barriers to entry, or really the services have set the barriers to entry to these consortiums pretty low because they want maximum participation among both traditionals and non-traditionals. But there are some potential concerns there, depending on how well you're controlling information potentially classified information or controlled information that goes into these consortiums. So what did you find about how well DOD is monitoring security concerns around information going into these consortiums? One of the main security oversight weaknesses we identified really is the reliance on those CMOs to vet the members that are a part of the consortiums. And also all the while ensuring that, you know, that proper proper safeguarding of the, you know, controlled and restricted information. For example, uh, we throughout the report, you know, we, we have different examples, but I'll, I'll highlight just one here for, for illustrative purposes. Uh, we, ident- we identified solicitations and bid data um, that were subject to certain restrictions, um, such as uh, U.S. contractors only. And there are certain DOD directives that require, you know, certain forms and vetting to, to qualify as a U.S. contractor in order to obtain access to restricted data and bid information. But, but DOD is relying on the CMOs to ensure that those security requirements are in place before providing the information to the consortium members. So, you know, again, DOD is relying on the CMOs, and that is, that is something that we identified as oversight for security weakness. Um, another security weakness we found uh, was the lack of a requirement for members to be registered in the system for award management. Uh, So when a contractor is registered in this system for award management, DOD personnel have the ability to see if there are any exclusions associated with the contractor. And um, exclusions prevent a contractor from receiving federal contracts. Now, contractors use the system to also self-assert to their representations and certifications, like, you know, if, if they're a small business, for example. But without that requirement to register in the system for award management, DOD loses the ability to verify that contractor status prior to the award. So that's, that's yet another security weakness. And then the last weakness I'll highlight um, is, is the lack of aggregate security reviews of technical information that gets released to consortium members. Each project is reviewed individually, but the consortium gets provided hundreds of projects with, you know, within a specific technology area. And those consortium members are receiving all solicitation and supplementary guidance for each of them. So the aggregate of that information can often provide a clear picture into the government's interests you know, with regard to um, you know, military critical technologies, for example. 
Um, since DOD is relying on the CMOs to vet consortium members, there's no true way for DOD to know what consortium members are even receiving the data. You, you, you said that the consortium management organizations are in charge of doing that vetting process. Does DOD even have the ability to go inspect after the fact to get a sense of which companies are in a consortium to, to do sort of a post hoc audit after companies have been admitted to a consortium to look for things like, I don't know, a shell company that's actually operated by a foreign intelligence agency? Well, there's certain, um, like certain security uh, measures or, or vetting that has to be done ahead of time. And that was one of the first weaknesses we talked about. The CMOs are the ones that perform that. DOD relies solely on the CMOs to do that. So the contractual relationship, again, is between government and CMO. So the CMO works um, or provides all the information back to the government and communicates with the government on the um, consortium member's behalf. So the government doesn't necessarily have an after review, like you mentioned. This may be beyond the, the scope of your work here, but did you did you look at any of these individual consortium management organizations to try and gauge whether some are doing a better job of others at managing that security vetting process, or was that just kind of out of scope for this? Um, that was that was out of scope for this particular audit, but um, we did when we determined our sample, we selected CMOs that were kind of the primary CMOs in this consortium arena so that we, we could get, you know, a pretty good sense of how, how they were doing. But we did not go into in-depth, you know, review of the CMOs for this particular effort. Moving on to another subject in, in the report, let's talk about competition a little bit. What did you find as far as how OTs awarded to and through consortium affect DOD's usually a usual obligation to award government work in, on a competitive basis to the maximum extent? Practicable. I think that's actually in the statute, in the OT statute, maximum extent practicable, whatever that means. How do these impact competition overall? For the most part, we found that DOD was competing the OTs uh, awarded through consortiums, and we didn't find that the use of consortiums for the uh, base awards that we reviewed uh, complicated the government's ability to award competitively. The, the code gives agreements personnel the authority to non-competitively award follow-on production OTs from a prototype OT as long as that prototype OT was competitively awarded and successfully completed. So based on the guidance, there is incentive to, to competitively award the OT. Uh, I'll give you an example of where this could have been done better. Um, the Marine Corps example that we cite in our report, um, the agreements personnel did not issue a solicitation identifying their specific needs, but rather performed research and they you know, compared the potential capabilities of known CMOs and consortiums. So the agreements personnel based their decision to award um, to a particular CMO based solely on their research. They didn't request white papers, proposals, or even um, evaluate what those CMOs could offer or even the price at which they would offer. Um, the fact that they identified multiple consortiums in their research uh, for us supported that competition was, was certainly possible. Um, had the Marine Corps competed the OTA, other consortiums may have provided a better way to address that specific need, um, and more importantly, you know, the opportunity to negotiate a better price. Also on the transparency piece, 
I, I, I will say as a from a journalistic perspective, one of the frustrations about consortiums for us is they are black boxes to us. We cannot see what sort of work DOD is competing and awarding inside of them. And I, I, I'm just... I'm just wondering if that's a concern for people <laughs> other than journalists, because if you're if you're a company who's not in the consortium, the government may be maybe advertising requirement that's right up your alley, but you'll never know about it. You'll never know that that it was solicited and you'll never know that it was awarded unless you happen to be inside that consortium. Is, is, is that a policy concern that, that you looked at at all that could implicate competition? So as far as as that particular concern, the the OT consortium, like the intent behind it is to provide DOD with access, with additional access to, you know, companies or contractors that they may not have access to. So there there's definite benefit. Um, you know, consortium resources are usually aligned to a particular domain. So those that participate or work in that domain um, you know, to your point, may or may not have access to a consortium, but, you know, at least you know, there is that structure from the standpoint of they're organized by cyberspace uh, propulsion. Um, they're managed, again, by, by a single entity. But the consortium itself has a website, and, you know, information is, you know, on there as far as, you know, for, for someone to become a member of the consortium, there's different procedures in place for it. Um, but, Yes, the OTs through consortium are limited to the consortium members. Teresa Hull is our guest on this week's edition of On DOD. She is the Assistant DOD Inspector General for Audit for Acquisition Issues. She's back with us to talk more about the new audit of other transaction agreements after one more break. This is On DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we're talking with Teresa Hull, the Assistant DOD Inspector General for Audit for Acquisition Issues, as we wrap up our conversation on the IG's new report focusing on other transaction agreements and consortiums in DOD. Um, let's talk about bid protests a little bit. I've, I've heard a lot of different musings over the years about whether OTs are really protestable at all, and if they are, at what stages, during what parts of, of the procurement they, they might be amenable to protest. Do we have a clear answer on that yet uh, as, as far as if if a non-winning bidder can protest anything that's awarded through an OT at all at any stage? Based on what we looked at, um, there doesn't appear to be a, a clear consensus on you know whether someone can protest an OTA award. And, and again, the guidance is not clear. Um, in our report, we highlighted some examples that showed or demonstrated this confusion. Uh, you know, according to the OT guide, the bid protests are rare, but it's possible if the agency includes language in a solicitation to allow for agency-level protests. Now, the language that I mentioned is not required, um, and it only addresses agency-level protests. Uh, we, we actually made a recommendation for DOD to determine whether it will require the inclusion of that basic protest language in OTA solicitations and to establish processes or best practices to address OTA protests. Our intent you know, with the recommendation was to help clarify uh, the protest process regarding OTAs and to ensure you know, that the process is fair regarding scrutiny of awards 
while, again, not limiting flexibility allowed um, through the use of the OTAs. Is that something, I, I, I don't know this, is that something the government is normally required to do during a FAR-based solicitation? In other words, notify potential offers of their protest rights? Um, under typical FAR-based contracting, there are clauses that contracting officers more routinely include for protests. Um, and and let's, let's move on to who's awarding OTs as far as members of the workforce. As I understood it from the report, there are special agreement officers that, that have warrants and, and can obligate money on behalf of the government, but they don't necessarily have to be traditional contracting officers or be involved in awarding contracts of any other kind. And the, the sort of curriculum and training requirements for these agreements officers is not particularly well-defined yet. Is that fair? Well, we, we found that the agreements officer personnel are made up of warranted contracting officers. Now, DOD allows the components to establish their own processes for selecting and warranting the agreements officers. Um, the, the OT guide states that the process should ensure that AOs have demonstrated expertise in executing, managing, or administering complex acquisition instruments um, and that the, these individuals can function in a less structured environment, which is um, much like the OTs, of course. And the guide, though, does not provide the agreements officer eligibility criteria or require a separate warrant. Uh, we found differences among the services for how they appointed these agreements officers. You know, to give some examples, the Air Force, uh, an Air Force agreements officer in our sample, uh, said that the only requirement that they had to become an agreements officer was a delegation letter. Um, some of the other offices in our sample issued their own minimum requirements for their agreements officers and their agreements officer warrants, but there was nothing DOD-wide or even service-wide that we were able to identify when we performed our work. We recommended that the DOD implement um, department-level guidance establishing that standard AO delegation and warrant process. Um, you know, in this case, for this particular recommendation, uh, we got a partial agreement. Um, instead of uh, implementing DOD-level guidance, establishing a standard AO delegation and warrant process, their response was to issue overarching guidance that answered the intent of our recommendation. Um, we feel that, you know, implementing DOD-level AO or administrative or agreements officer requirements um, will help bring more consistency to the OT process. Um, without impacting flexibility of the use of OTs. Um, you asked about training. Uh, training requirements did vary from office to office and even within the same service. Uh, Army issued a supplemental guidance for prototype project OTs, and that contained minimum training requirements for agreements officers um, that award and manage OTs. For the Navy, we didn't identify any service-wide guidance, but each of the three offices in our sample um, listed training that they did receive to become an agreements officer. Now for the Air Force, there was no Air Force-wide guidance either at the time of our site visits, but one Air Force command in our sample uh, actually issued guidance requiring agreements officer training. And during the course of our audit, an Air Force, issue, Air Force issued a memorandum requiring training uh, before being appointed as an agreements officer. Um, some of the agreements officers that we interviewed through our work um, said that a small portion of their training covered awarding OTs through consortiums, and there was no training specifically focused on 
consortium-based OTs and the particulars that come with those types of awards. Hmm. Um, just to start to wrap us up here a little bit, Teresa, we've, we've talked about a lot of risk areas that you found with regard to OTs. You made more than a dozen recommendations to the department. Based on feedback you got on those recommendations and their response to them, what's your sense of the extent to which DOD recognizes these issues and is moving to solve them? Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, we, we have seen an uptick in OTAs. So as, as the agreements officers are, are using these OTAs more often, um, there, is, there is more of a learning base um, there. So as they use them more, like I think some of the different nuances with the different OTAs and OTAs through consortiums are becoming highlighted. So it, you know, it appears through our work, through our recommendations, that DOD is responding um, to the fact that there needs to be strengthened controls and through the updating of the OT guide, for example, um, that should allow for increased you know, consistency for tracking and um, visibility as far as information about the individual projects that result from these OTAs through consortiums. There, there are efforts to update FPDSNG, the, the system. Um, that will take some time, of course, because of, of just the process of updating a system such as, such as that one. Um, but there is definitely um, some forward movement from DOD on getting better control over these uh, OTs. Is it, it, just, just to wrap us up on that, that data point that we kind of started the conversation with, how much of this problem could DOD solve with better data? Um, it, it, we, we talked about a little bit earlier whether this is a policy issue or a data issue, but I, I just got to wonder, once you solve the data problems, does some of the policy problems start rising to the surface a little bit more and become more obvious things that, that the department has to solve? Because right now there's kind of a head in the sand issue potentially, right? I mean, if, if, if the DOD cannot see that entire universe of what it's doing through OTs, doesn't necessarily know what it's spending on a given project, doesn't know what it's getting for that money, uh, that, that's, that's a whole set of problems in and of itself. It, definitely. And, and I, the way, the way, or the work that we did, you know, supports that there really needs to be both changes, policy and system. Because if you do one without the other, um, you're going to be in a, you know, in a precarious situation because you're either not going to be able to enter information in a way, you know, that would give you the, the, the data that you need to provide for, for DOD to make some, you know, decisions about these OTs, you know, if you're talking from the system perspective. From the policy perspective, until you issue guidance on what personnel should report or how they should award, then you're going to keep seeing those inconsistencies. So it's, it's really both in order to, to get a handle around this issue. And then you may be able to start seeing some of the total dollars you know, associated with OTs and, and be able to, to really analyze what, what you have in the OT space. You know, this oversight area for us is something that we're continuously monitoring. In fact, we have two additional projects that we just issued, audit announcement letters we just issued in March. Um, one of the projects is going to talk about um, audit of DOD other transactions and the use of non-traditional contractors. And then we issued an announcement for an audit on a hotline complaint that we received um, concerning um, allegations 
for the Defense Ordnance Technology Consortium award process. So those are two uh, ongoing projects that I think will you know, add additional data points to this OTA oversight area. Teresa Hull is Assistant DOD Inspector General for Audit, talking with us today about a new audit of DOD's use of other transaction agreements and third-party consortiums. As she said, that new report is the first in what's going to be a series of audits the IG is working on with regard to OTAs and DOD. While we await those, we'll post a link to the first report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod. You'll also find this week's full program there in case you missed any of our conversation today. You can also subscribe to On DoD in Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, or your favorite podcast app. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serby. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.